0: Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: How are you doing? My hope would be a lot of you would say, I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to Christmas. I'm excited about this week. Uh, I'm showing up assuming that the majority of us probably wouldn't say that. Uh, And I could be wrong, I haven't spoken to everyone, but I'm assuming that the honest answer to how you're doing would include things like, I'm a little bit anxious, or a lot anxious. I'm frustrated. I'm a little bit confused, not sure how to make sense of what's happening and what the implications are. any number of things that we can share that are probably part of the reality of this last week where there's been an intensification of COVID. Uh, Very quick, surprising to some of us and trying to figure out the implications of it. Uh, What does that mean for this upcoming week? And so this has been a week where all sorts of things that normally would be bringing us joy or are part of uh, this season of life are changing rapidly. Um, The Rockettes, Christmas program, canceled. You know, it's not like they do this 52 weeks in a year and they just need to take a month off. This is the season, done. Uh, Alvin Ailey, ending their program early. Saturday Night Live, it's not just that they broadcast live but their thing is in front of a live audience, not last night, no live audience last night. They canceled that. Chicago Bulls canceled two games this week. Um, of course, all sorts of schools, that uh, uh, higher education, colleges, university, quickly went to finishing the semester online. Some are already announcing that the first three weeks of January won't be in person. We'll see who follows that, but you think of Cornell. In one week, more than 1,500 students testing post, uh, COVID positive at a campus with a 97% vaccination rate. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that um, for us here? You just saw half of the children's program we've been planning for weeks, with fewer than half of the kids who had been part of our rehearsing. And so I've been learning this last year to be grateful for every good thing. I am really grateful for what just happened. Um, But it's less than we had planned. We wanted today to be a great celebration for this season. Um, We have a former member, an opera singer, who said, hey, I'm gonna be visiting Emmanuel. On December 19th, if you want me to sing, I'd be happy to. So those of you who have downloaded the bulletin after the sermon, there's supposed to be a song that will not be sung. He called yesterday. Somebody in his immediate family has COVID. So right now, that's where we are. And then when you think of what we aspire to for Christmas, we want to eat well and we want to get together with people and we want to celebrate. And now it raises the question, is it going to be that kind of Christmas? and will there be any hope and joy and peace and the things that we associate with Christmas, but of course you go to the Christmas stories and there are always things in them that indicate Christmas is both a wonderful and hopeful occasion, what we're commemorating, the birth of Jesus, but there's always hints within it that the reason it's so wonderful is because it's a contrast to something God is doing in a world that really needs something wonderful. And so, it's always tempting as we read through the Christmas stories to overlook certain words that show up in nearly every passage um, or certain elements of the story. And so, yeah, we really like the angels. Glory to God in the highest and peace to everyone on whom his favor rests. That excites me. But the Christmas children's program has never had Herod going to a village to annihilate the children. We just haven't done that before. It's the Christmas story, though. And even in today's reading from Isaiah 35, we've selected for December these traditional Advent uh, texts that are so overwhelmingly hopeful. But in today's passage, this vision of what God will do, um, so overwhelmingly wonderful. But in it, there are words like desert and wilderness. Okay, that's not alarming. That's just part of our globe, part of our geography. There are lions. Lions are okay, but they're grouped in with other predatorial animals. So now you start to get a sense of maybe the lion is a symbol here of of part of our our world that maybe not be uh, not something so wonderful. And then uh, the hope at the end that sorrow and sighing will flee. That's hopeful, but there are still wildernesses and deserts. There are still predators. There is still sorrow and sighing. And so when you go to the Christmas passages that talk about why Jesus came and what it meant, we find that key to the hope is precisely that it's into that world that Christmas speaks. And so Advent is a season of waiting. And, and for many of us, we're just waiting for Christmas. And, and in a normal year, what, what most of us are trying to experience is an excited and an eager waiting. We can't wait for this good thing to come because we want to celebrate. But the church has often celebrated Advent as a patient, sighing, waiting, a time to remember that that the arrival of Jesus signaled good news because there was a long wait for his arrival. And his coming did something radical, but not something thorough. It began something that will be completed, and we have a great advantage living after his arrival, but the church is still awaiting people. That's very clear throughout the New Testament. We're waiting for Jesus to return, uh, to, to realize the fullness of all that God has promised. And so we too are awaiting people, and waiting carries anticipation, excitement, expectation, but also it, it carries that longing and that sorrowing and that sighing because one of the reasons we wait eagerly is because we need help. And so, verse four is what makes this a, an appropriate Advent passage. He will come. That's the promise of Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus. There's a servant that we've been hearing about. You read through the book of Isaiah, there's a servant who will come. And here it is as a reminder of, uh, the, the passage is mostly about this vision of what will happen, what one day God will do. But there's the reminder again, he will come. God will come. This servant will come and he will change things. And therefore, in talking about Christmas this year, this week, want to highlight two things about Christmas that are part of what the church has always remembered and maybe to highlight some things that are, are more relevant to where we're at in this particular time. First is Christmas marks the start of something new. And the accent of what I'm getting at is in the word start. Jesus arriving begins something wonderful, but we are still awaiting people. We're still waiting for the full realization of what he began. And so things are better in many ways, but things are not perfect. And so we're still a longing people, a mourning people, a grieving people, a hoping people. So uh, our passage, Isaiah 35, opens up with wilderness, with desert. And, you know, these days you can travel to a place like Death Valley in the United States, in California. It's a, a wonderful place with striking, Uh, scenery, but you wonder where did they, why do they call it Death Valley? And my understanding is the term came because of an incident in the 19th century, but uh, from what I've heard from people in the region, it was pretty common 50 years ago that a car driving through would overheat. That was somewhat frequently in in cars, you know, now the technology is better, but a car would overheat. Well, what's the big deal about a car overheating? You just call a tow truck if they had cell phones. 50 years ago. And so there you are with your car breaking down in the middle of the desert. You can't call anyone. And it may be 120 degrees now. So you could wait where? Where's the shade? Where's the water? Well, don't worry. It'll be 30 degrees in five hours. Uh, What are your options there? And so apparently, Death Valley was a place that if you were trying to get through, not because you wanted to visit that as a destination, there was something scary about the risk of going there. And in the Bible, the wilderness can be a place of temptation, a place of discouragement, a place of failing. Read the book of Numbers. What happens when God's people start to get weary? You know, here's God providing manna. What a wonderful thing. But it's been manna every day for a long time. And yes, Egypt was miserable. But this manna is getting a bit bland, a bit boring. Can, can we relate to what happens a year or two into monotony? lack of progress. Are we going forward? Are we going backward? I don't know, but what happened in the book of Numbers, they started to, to become unthankful. They started to resent one another. They started to turn against one another. Um, are we experiencing any of those temptations in our hearts and minds? Is the monotony of this last year, forget about this last week, but just existing as we have, are we starting with friends and family to get impatient? Are we starting um, to lose our zeal for our work or our hope for our future. That's probably part of what most of us have been experiencing anyway. And so that idea of wilderness, that idea of desert, um, something that's helpful because it's bigger than any of us. You know, right now we could talk about particular problems that are solvable and we could talk about climate change. And it's clear that as human beings, we are able to extend the desert. We're able to create uninhabitable environments. But what power do we have? Is it just to slow it down? Can we actually turn things around? Those are the kinds of things that maybe cause us to lose confidence in our own humanity. Verses 1 and or in 2, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. A place that was scary, terrifying, miserable will be a place of joy. That's a promise when he comes, when God comes. The, what he's coming to do is, is at a depth in our world that human beings can't touch, we can't control. We can only hope that God would do something. The announcement is God will, he will come one day. And so you read the gospel narratives about the arrival of Jesus. Jesus comes as something new, but not brand new, not unprecedented, but announced, anticipated, waited on for hundreds of years. And so you see in the story, the imagery of Luke's gospel, those are the classic texts. You could also read from Matthew, Jesus' birth narratives. Uh, But we heard from Luke this morning, so I'll just stay within that. God coming as a, a baby. Now that's symbolically significant. All sorts of questions. Why that way? Why incarnation? Why come as a baby? Profound question, lots of deep answers. But think at a very simple level that a baby represents something new, promise, potential, the beginning. And he's born of Mary who is remarkably young by our standards. And so there's a youthfulness in Luke. It begins with that, but there's a contrast of the new and the old because uh, Mary has a cousin who's not as young as her and whose pregnancy remarks uh, 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 signals a waiting person who has the desire fulfilled. But then you meet these figures like Anna and Simeon, these very Old people whose lives have been hard, not thriving. But what marks them is they're part of this smaller community that has been faithfully waiting. They were crazy enough to believe the promises that they've inherited, even if the previous generations believed and passed it on to them but didn't see the realization. So in Luke 2, when we meet Simeon in verses 25 and 26, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him." Consolation, comfort, that's a word from Isaiah. He's waiting for the promise of comfort. It says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. When I was growing up, there were all these jokes about a messenger who had to give good news and bad news and asks, Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? And the story of Simeon kind of reads to me that this is my problematic biblical reading. This is the way, this is not right interpretation. I read the story and it's like, do you want the good news or the bad news? The good news is you will not die until you see the Lord's anointed. What's the bad news? Introducing the Lord's anointed. Uh, You know, you read the story and you think, oh, wow, this is a signal of this old man, the end of his life. And for any of us who fear death or are baffled by death, how is this announcement good? And then you remember there's a very different story that Simeon is part of. Uh, His story was one of waiting, and he probably would have assumed much of his life he was the next generation to pass on the promise. Perhaps his father read to him from Isaiah, and says, God said he will come, we believe it. And he saw his father die passing on the promise and he thought, I will be somebody who will pass on an unrealized promise to the next generation. When the Holy Spirit says, you will not die until you see the Lord's anointed. At the birth of Jesus, he does not say, Lord, give me 15 more years to see what will become of this child. His Apgar scores are so good, what potential on this young boy? He doesn't pray for a longer life. He says, now I can depart in peace. It's a very different attitude. He was longing. He was waiting. He had the privilege not of being somebody who would never die, but of not dying without seeing the start of the realization of God's promise. He got to see it. He could die in peace and he symbolizes the end of an older, longing, dying people, and now something new comes. And it's that that is the Christmas story. Um, It took generations, but, but God told the truth when he promised that somebody would come. And it wasn't just a person coming and declaring that he was the fulfillment. Everything around the Christmas story and ministry of Jesus that follows demonstrates this is God. This is God's doing. He is realizing what he's promised. It's beginning. And there are all sorts of stories, and I think certainly um, the post World War II generation becoming disillusioned with humanity and their expectations. You know, that, that generation started to think of this concept of futility and what are we waiting for? Is there any hope? And so, a modern version of a story that's a bit more fun is the movie Waiting for Guffman, not quite as stark and absurd as Waiting for Godot, um, meant to be funny, but a similar idea of of waiting. And what are we waiting for? So Waiting for Guffman is about this small town community theater in a fictional town in Missouri where uh, a guy who is there who claims to have all sorts of links to the theater world is working with this quirky community theater group on on the 150th anniversary of this small town on a play. And to inspire them he says he has connections to this guy Mort Guffman a Broadway guy who says he's going to come, and if he writes a great review, this play could get picked up. And so now all of these people have aspirations. You you have the dentist, and you have the local, uh, you know, whoever it is that's dreaming. Um, Maybe we could become Broadway stars. And the hope is that if we keep rehearsing uh, through the guy leading our play, his friend will show up and something even greater than we prepare, something magical could come. I've learned enough from hearing people's responses to other sermons to avoid the spoiler alert, so I was prepared to pull a lesson out of the end, but I won't. I think the lesson is from that trajectory. Uh, Are we being foolish? Is this guy ever going to show up? Is there an actual guffman? Are we being lied to? Um, If he comes, is he actually a person of power and influence. Will he help us?" You know, that story is the kind of story that we wind up grappling with in terms of life, faith, religion. Is there really a God who will come, or is that something we're just being told? That question will come up for any of us. Um, Or when he comes, will we be disappointed at who he is, that he's not who we thought he was, or that he's disappointed with us and therefore his coming is difficult? That's the kind of question behind so much of our fears and worries about life, the universe, death, etern- eternity, these sorts of things. The Christmas story, the arrival is helpful because it says there is a God. He does come. And the story tells us that his coming uh, tells us that he, is, he and his plan are far greater we would have understood. And so no, the fulfillment, the finality of all things did not culminate in the arrival of Jesus, but it began. And so the advantage we have is to realize that those who had been waiting on God from the promises of Isaiah and the other prophets and the other scriptures were not foolish, but also the joy that they began to experience signaled a reality that that things were truly changing where there's a different trajectory. So we're still waiting. There's still difficulties, but things are different. And so what are the signs of his coming? So, you know, you read the Gospels. If you just pick up the Gospel of any of the four Gospels um, and you read it without having any background and you wonder, Jesus does these miracles. Why does he do them? And... There's no one right answer, but, but the kinds of things we could think is to get people's attention. I mean, that's what we do now. If you're gonna market something, you need something striking to get people's attention. And so maybe G- Jesus did these miraculous signs so people would give him a hearing. That's not the fully right answer, although there's probably something pragmatically to that. Um, and I'm not here to give an answer for why the signs happened, but to realize there's a context, that it wasn't simply a display of power. It wasn't simply to affirm, it was those things, but we go to verses five to seven in our passage today. When the one who comes comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. So read the Gospels. Is that what you're seeing when he comes? Do you see the eyes of the blind open? Do you see the lame walking? Do you hear somebody declaring springs of living water are going to flow from him? And then you realize Jesus' ministry has this profound context that he comes to bring together all of these things that God has spoken and shown about who he was. And so therefore, his arrival means something good, something new has begun, a new direction. If some born blind are starting to see, well, then there's a hope that the spiritually blind of Isaiah's generation, uh, there could be a generation who begins to see and understand. And if there are streams of living water that will flow from Jesus, there's hope that our thirsts will be quenched. And so let's not be too discouraged yet that there's so much more that needs to be realized. Let's stop and pause and say, Christmas means something started, something began. He promised he would come and he did. And so the second thing I wanna talk about this morning is that puts us in a better position to exist while we wait. And so the second thing I wanna point out from our passage is that Christmas grounds a new way for us to live. So if it's true that the arrival of Jesus began something, that beginning helps us who are in the midst of this unfinished world. It creates a foundation that we can have a greater confidence if he promises to come and he does, then when he promises to return and bring salvation, we have greater assurance he will. And if the signs of his coming brought goodness and hope, then the signs that we are following and faithful to him can do the same thing in our generation. And so Christmas, the beginning of something new, um, creates a foundation for us. And so there's real change. And so verse 9 and 10, now going into the predators, the, no lion shall be there. So when the one comes, uh, there's this transformation that will culminate at the end of the ages. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now what's wrong with lions? Don't we want lions in the New Jerusalem? I know all of you chronicles of Narnia fans are thinking, What kind of weird promise is this? Aren't lions wonderful? Well lions are wonderful when your experience of them have been at the zoo and through photographs, and through video. If you're camping in the wilderness and a lion comes upon you, the dominant thought will be, what will not be, what a marvelous creature. Look at the strength and the power. We should declare this as the king of creation. There's something terrifying about an uncontrollable, powerful beast that will destroy us, that we can't reason with, we can't speak to, we can't distract. The promise that one day there will be a world that people with that kind of power, that kind of appetite, won't be the ones that have the ability to dominate is comforting. And so, this image here of his coming, and so in verse four, he's, before he says he will come, he's speaking to those who are anxious, those who are worried, those who are weak, those who are discouraged. He says, uh, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so there again, one of the, the words that we don't want to make it into our Christmas celebrations shows up. He will come, that's great. He will come with recompense, that's great. He will come in sorrow and sighing will flee, that's great. Uh, But why the word vengeance? How's that going to help our Christmas holiday this year? And then you realize the context of Jesus coming and the longing of his people. And and you realize that when when God looks down and he sees predators and he sees sorrowing, it's not that he wants to come as the great-grandfather and magically make it go away, but there is a an understandable anger. Speak to those who have anxious hearts. God looks upon the anxious. He looks on the weak. He looks on the hopeless and the discouraged. And he's angry with what we suffer. The anger because of God's holiness is an expression of his love. That, that when he comes, he's coming to bring peace, to make all things new. But he's coming into a world that is hostile and therefore his coming includes anger at the hostility, anger that he needs to solve a sorrow problem that we should have the intellectual faculties to figure out an answer to, but we don't have the hearts. And so he comes to the anxious, and he comes in good news, but he comes with vengeance, and what that means is his coming is a bit scary. Now, what's interesting is you read the birth narratives, and Mary rejoices at God her Savior, and she mentions these uncomfortable words, enemies, that's not what we want in our Christmas story. Um, Other hints in his coming, and yet we're, we're not being too simple to say that the really strong dominant theme of Jesus' coming is his peace, his love, his kindness, his mercy and compassion. That's not an exaggeration. What's remarkable is that if God really sees, if God is powerful, if God will come as he promised to put an end to all of that's difficult, if the goodness of God means he will come in vengeance, the Christmas story is so remarkable because his generation thought, as every generation afterwards has thought, why did he not fulfill everything? Why in his coming did it not all come together? There's a surprising component that God still works over generations. So he came to begin something, He will come one day to complete it. You read the Gospels and Jesus doesn't strike you as a person of vengeance. He's a person who came in grace and mercy. The reason Christmas is such good news is because he didn't come instantaneously to fix all things, but he he came in the fullness of time to begin to cause the sorrowing and the sighing to flee, to to put an end to the predator, to, to bring water to the desert in a way that in God's wisdom wouldn't require destroying everything. Sure, we could win a war by dropping a bomb and annihilating an entire country. We can do that. Is that the way to establish peace? So now what do you do when there's an army but there's civilians? God comes into this world. He sends Jesus, and he's coming again. But what we find is that the first coming is a coming not to unleash vengeance, but to... Bear it. We find that his first coming was not to quickly take sorrow away, but as Isaiah will tell you, the one who comes, comes as a man of sorrows. The remarkable thing about the Christmas story is the nature of the God of the Bible is not that he's aloof, not that he can't do anything, but he will come in wisdom, not to destroy, but to establish peace. He has to come with anger, he has to put an end to corruption. But he also desires to save and to show mercy. And the way he did it was not from an outside act of power or demonstration, but by coming into the world not to hear about our sorrows, but to be the man of sorrow, to experience, to take it upon himself. Not simply to come to encourage the infirm, but to bear our infirmities. Not simply to unleash God's vengeance, but to first absorb the wrath. And so the one whose birth we celebrate was meek and mild, gentle and lowly, but he ends his life crucified because Jesus came to prepare a people. We are not ready for his coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So the promise of his coming and the renewal of all things, he came first to make it possible that we could look with hope for that. I don't know about you, But when I think of the return of Jesus, I know that I'm supposed to long for it, but I don't feel that I'm ready. I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. And so there's a part of me that doesn't want him to come. I'm willing to exist in the world and allow the injustice to continue because of my fear of what will happen when he arrives. Christmas says, get out of that. He's come in mercy and grace. Don't be afraid at his appearing because the one who comes in vengeance is merciful, kind, forgiving. It's offered now. So see the one who was born and the gift given to us. Receive him and then join the community that really wants to see a quick and hasty end to sorrow and misery. We underestimate that Jesus came first to prepare us for his coming again. The promise of Isaiah is he will come. Christmas reminds us he did, and Christmas tells us he'll come again, don't be afraid of it, but long for it and start to live now as though you really believe the world has begun to be changed. But there's so much difficulty in the world, but there is also the grace of God, which means that we now can live as though we believe something new has started. We don't need to get caught up with the predatorial behavior. We don't need to die in the desert We don't need to be overwhelmed by our sorrow. But we can believe that if this is the nature of God, if this is the hope, if he has created this highway, then we can live differently. In verse 4, he comes with vengeance, but it's also with recompense. He will come and save you. He will reward us, but I don't deserve a reward. I deserve judgment. Jesus came, and he did not deserve judgment, but he received it. He deserves a reward, and Jesus will share it. So he will come with vengeance, but he will come with recompense. So make sure that you're experiencing and receiving that grace, and he will save you. And so when he comes, sorrow and sighing will flee. For us, maybe the lion is not tangible. Lions exist, but lions don't terrify us. Maybe the desert isn't tangible. There are deserts here, but we don't live in one. We live in a city. Is sorrow tangible? for you. Um, sighing, is that part of your life? That is as real to some of us as lions are in their inhabitant. And what we're told is that it's not simply that, that the desert will be renewed and the lion, um, but we're told that uh, those who sorrow, God does not come to, to destroy the sorrowful. God comes to save the sorrowful and cause the sorrow to flee. How on earth do you do that? The Christmas story says, this is not what we would have planned, but this is how God did it. He came himself, the man of sorrows, to bear our infirmities so that he can save a people who will be on this path. And so verse 8, the one who comes will create a highway. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. We're invited to a new way. The one who is holy says, now follow me. There's a different way to live. There's a new beginning, and you can can receive his grace and change your life and walk in that new way. And therefore, it's a way of hope. It's a way that we can be confident one day there will be satisfaction at the end of walking it. And so Jesus tells all these parables about people who are waiting, and the waiting goes on too long, and so they go back to their old ways. You know, it's the servant, it's the master who beats the servants under the other master or the person who squanders the resources. There are all these stories that Jesus says, now that I've come, live today as though I may return, but I may not. You may be a generation who dies not seeing the realization, but we may also depart in peace because we've seen the return of Christ. We don't know, but we're told is to live by faith, walk on that path of holiness. Holiness is not about this um, high intense moral commitment. It's about rooting yourself in this new life and living that new life. You know, whenever um, December comes and I need to pick what we're gonna sing as a church, it's always hard because there are so many good Christmas hymns. And there are some that the texts are so good, but they're unfamiliar that I feel like our people will be gypped if they show up and they sing a song that they've never heard. And you know, there's only once a year that we get to sing Joy to the World. So do you wanna miss it because we sang something else? Well, here's here's a a hymn that we will never sing, as far as I know, in the context of this service. Not because it's not a good one, but I, I don't understand how we would categorize it as a hymn. But you ever hear Good King Wenceslaus? It's sort of a Christmas song. It's a great story, a great text. Everything about it is great, but it's a little bit weird that we're singing about some bohemian king of the 10th century. So, while I'm pastor here, that will not make it into the worship service, but it's, it's an example of the kinds of ways that Christians have, have created and told stories that are meant to say, if Jesus has come, we are meant to be a different people. And so in that song that was written in the 19th century, but there was this actually, there was a guy, Wenceslaus, the Duke. He was never a king. After he died, he was so admired, they declared him a king, but he was not really a king. He was royalty and he was admired. The reason he didn't become a king is because like in every other earthly story, his family killed him. And so his story is not this magical, wonderful Santa Claus kind of guy. It's a story about a real political personality who was killed, but the reputation, which perhaps as we do history, got exaggerated of his being a martyr. Look at how wonderful this person was. So I don't know if this actual individual was as perfect as the story makes out. My interest is not to do the the historical piece, but to, to raise the question of why do Christians want to tell this kind of story? And so what's the story? The story is of a royal person who has an entourage of one person who travels with him. And the one person is not there to announce to everyone that somebody great is coming, but is to help him with his task, which is his task is to walk around and find people who are poor and care for them. That's the, the reputation, the legacy. And so he has this partner that goes around and helps him do that. That's what the, the song is about. And the song, you know, as I think of it, you know, here in verse seven, it says, the burning sand shall become a pool. And I remember being a little kid on the beach when you're uh, sort of on the blanket and there's the water. And I don't know if, if the skin gets thicker under your feet or if you just get used to pain, but there was kind of that, ooh, ah, ooh, you know, trying to get from the, from the, the blanket to the water, That that burning sand. Um, so here's this image of Isaiah of, I want to stay where I am, I don't want to go there because it's going to be painful. Now if you're in Czechoslovakia, maybe your concern is not burning sand but freezing snow. So the imagery of good King Wenceslaus is not about burning sand but about freezing snow, but I think it's a similar idea that wherever we are, we, we don't want to go on. It's hard, it's hard to follow, it's hard to be faithful, it's easier to get stuck. And so. Um, My understanding is the words of the song that Bing Crosby sings, you Google Good King Wenceslaus, that's likely what comes up, Bing Crosby. Do not Google King Wenceslaus and Beatles. That will be not a way to enhance your Christmas uh, activity. But my understanding is that hymn is based on another narrative that was written around the same period, but it's a story that really started to take shape in the 12th century. But here's from a 19th century, um, not the poem, but a prose version. Uh, My liege, this is now the servant of King Wenceslaus, my liege, he said, I cannot go on. The wind freezes my very blood. Pray you, let us return. Seems it so much, asked the king. Was not his journey from heaven a wearier and colder way than this? Otto answered not. Follow me on still, said St. Wenceslas, only tread in my footsteps and you will proceed more easily. The servant knew that his master spoke not at random. He carefully looked for the footsteps of the king. He set his own feet in the print of his lord's feet. And I think that that story is told, even if it's an exaggeration, even if it's fictionalized because of the aspiration to say people who believe in Jesus believe this is really how we should live, that if there's a king on earth who knows the king of the heavens, he wants to walk on earth as that king walked. And so therefore, if it's a hard path, he will go first. And if that ruler with power and authority on earth will lead, he will go before his people. And he would say, don't stay where you are, but let's go for the sake of others. And if you won't go, I will go before you. And then just step where I stepped and I will make it possible. That, I think, makes good King Wenceslaus a very appropriate Christmas season song. The picture that if the king of kings came, what did he do, and how does that ca- change the kings and the powers of the earth? Do we dream that one day that's what authority would look like as its exercise? Somebody who says, I will go out and care for people with needs, and when the servant says, I can't, we will. And I'll go before you. Is that not a better image and a picture of what's possible for humanity? That is the highway of holiness. And Jesus comes to create the beginning, and he says, and he is going to see us through to the end. And when we get there, sorrow cannot remain. So we carry our sorrows along the way, but the idea is Jesus will bear our burdens. There will be a lessening, and then sometimes there will be an increase. But when we Come to the end when he returns and we see him as he is. Sorrow can't remain, but here's the thing. You can. Your sighing will flee, but the sire, the person who sighs, will enter. And that's what Christmas tells us. He came as he promised, not just once, but he came first to prepare us. And he's coming again to give us all the things that are promised. And we're called now to not only believe that it will happen, but to live today to say, it began. So I'm gonna live as that's my reality. And then the church will be living water among the wilderness and the desert. That's our calling, but you need faith. You need to believe that Jesus will come. And so, so turn to him this Christmas and believe that his coming Uh, creates a ground, a foundation, that if you hope and believe that he will come again, you can live differently. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, we're gathering today trying to bring to mind again what it is in this profound reality that a child was born in fulfillment of promise to change the world. And here we are in a world that has not changed as thoroughly as we would like, that we ourselves are not changed as we desire. Lord, as a waiting people, as an imperfect people in an imperfect world, we pray that however this next week unfolds, we would not miss the reality that you promised to come and you are faithful to what you promise and that Jesus in his arrival began something that can make us different, that can make our world different, and that while we patiently endure the slowness of the change, uh, that we would keep going, that we would not be anxious, that we would not lose heart, that we would not give up, but that you would grant us by your spirit the kind of faith this season that readies us for whatever we face this week, whatever we face this month, whether it's COVID-related or unrelated but still difficult. Lord, may this be a season of strengthening in our spirits, filling with hope, confidence in what you have promised, and a longing for that return to make all things new. Lord, grant us that grace we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.